We're here at the Potteries Museum and Art Gallery talking about Reginald Mitchell, a name that will be known to many people and certainly to anyone who knows anything about the Battle of Britain. Reginald Mitchell was the father of the famous Spitfire. And we're very fortunate to be joined today by three people who have a very strong interest in both Reginald Mitchell and his ties to Stoke-on-Trent. Firstly, we have Joe Perry, who is assistant curator and in charge of the Spitfire Gallery here at the Potteries Museum and Art Gallery. We're also joined by Mark Harris, the director of Supermarine Aero Engineering here in Stoke, the name which everybody associates so strongly with the Spitfire. And finally, by Reginald Mitchell's great-nephew, Julian Mitchell. Julian, how is Reginald remembered in the family? His initials are RJ, Reginald Joseph Mitchell. So generally he's referred to as RJ, or sometimes he was called Mitch in the workplace, but we call him RJ. Tell us a little about the early life of this great man. Well, Reginald was born in 1895 in Butt Lane, which is part of Kidsgrove. He had four siblings. Reginald went to Hanley High School and excelled in mathematics. He and my grandfather, Eric, loved playing with aeroplanes. You have to remember that the first powered flight by an aircraft was in 1906 for kids growing up. It was just the most exciting thing. They had hot air balloons until that time, but nothing like that. He got an apprenticeship at a local engineering company called Kerr-Stewart, one of the best locomotive engineers in the world, really, at that time. So from an early age, he, he was interested in engineering. Everything he did was sort of focused in that way. Joe, you've been doing a lot of research as part of the Spitfire Gallery. How do you think this early experience and this early interest in powered flight actually shaped Reginald's later career? He was certainly someone of a lot of drive and ambition. And he went down to Supermarine at a very young age and very, very quickly progressed through the company to become technical director when he was only about 27. And that was really moulded in Stoke-on-Trent from an early age, playing with his brother, making model aeroplanes. And I know that uh, Herbert, his father, was quite keen on his children having practical skills, you know, making things, building things. So he had that from an early age in and around the family home and then becoming apprenticed at Kerr Stewart and Co, the engineering expertise within Stoke-on-Trent, there's this image that it's a city of pits and pots, but behind those industries there's a wealth of engineering expertise which supported the pottery industry, the mining industry, as well as building locomotives, building engines, things like that. So there was a great expertise in the city that he was able to tap into, gain the apprenticeship and really hone his skills, which he go on to use building the Spitfire. And Mark, I guess that's a tradition that Supermarine Aero here in uh, Stoke is carrying on. I'd like to think so, yeah. I think one interesting thing about Reginald Mitchell's time as an apprentice was he was very hands-on. He spent his time in the workshop, which I think is crucial to his engineering understanding, which came later. I think this is one of the problems with young engineers today. I think somewhere along the line, we've lost touch with the fact that in order to design something, in order to properly understand the mechanics of how something works, there's nothing better than actually making it yourself with your own hands. 
which is something that I'd like to think we certainly are trying to address. We're very much based in the type of engineering tradition that Reginald Mitchell would have been very familiar with. And he took those traditions to Southampton, specifically to Supermarine. Why Supermarine? I suppose it could have been any company. It was just that Supermarine was the right place at the right time for him, and that's where he went. I think one thing that's very interesting, if you look certainly around the Southampton area at the aeroplane manufacturing companies that were around at that time, you wouldn't believe how many there were. It was something that anybody with, I suppose, an engineering bent and a good imagination could see transforming the world and everybody wanted a piece of the cake. And so lots of companies sprung up to start making aeroplanes. Most failed. If you look today at what's left, it's virtually all gone. But then it was the thing to do and it was a new exciting industry. I suppose it was the Silicon Valley of Britain at that time and everybody that wanted to be somewhere was heading off into that world. I've got a nice photograph of Reginald Mitchell in the drawing office at Supermarines because, of course, that was the job he went for. He went to work in the drawing office. And there's a nice picture of uh, Reginald and there's two other fellas and there's two women there and all but one of the women have got pipes on. They're all drawing away on the pipes. Um, (laughs) And uh, the refreshing thing about seeing a photograph like that is you realise just what a small drawing office it was, what a small company it was. I think new industries spawn new ideas. It isn't spoiled by old standing traditions. It's like if you look at the women that were down there, why shouldn't women get involved with this new industry? It was 1916 when Reginald went down to Supermarine, which is in the middle of the First World War. So women clearly were getting involved at that time in all kinds of work. But it just goes to show the importance that engineering and engineering in this new technology had in that Reginald twice applied to join the army and actually was, so his son Gordon wrote in his book, said his services to the country were far better served in engineering and developing the engineering than going to the front. So, yes, it was the job that came up 1916. It could have been any job. He just wanted to expand what he was doing and the first job that he was offered was that one in Supermarine. What were they producing that maybe differentiated them from all these other makers? They weren't. And if you look at the track record of Supermarine before RJ got there, it was pretty mediocre. In fact, I think they had one successful aircraft that got into production of anything more than a prototype, and I think there were only five of those made. It was very much a fledgling company and hadn't really done very much before Reginald Mitchell joined the company. I think it's probably unfair to put it all down to Reginald Mitchell. But I think it's also true to say that Reginald Mitchell played a huge part in the formation of that company. And when Vickers got interested in Reginald Mitchell as being someone that they wanted, he was contractually tied to Supermarine, so they bought the company. Vickers bought Supermarine to get Reginald Mitchell. What you've got to remember is that The reason Southampton was so important is it had got industry and it was by the sea. And at that time, aeroplanes landed on water. Supermarine means above the waves. They were flying boats, and that's what Supermarine cut the teeth on. I suppose they were lucky to be in that place at that time and have someone like Reginald Mitchell on board, but I suppose that's the way of the world. 
When he went to Supermarine, from what you're saying, it sounds as if he changed the company, he raised the standards of the company very quickly. Is is that so? Yeah, that's true. He, he became their chief designer very, very quickly. They recognised that they'd got a real talent. But again, it was a fledgling industry. There were no old-timers, if you like, in the industry to tell anyone what should or shouldn't be done. It was a brave new world. Most of these fledgling aviation companies failed, and Supermarine didn't, and that would have been down to RJ and also the team he built around him. What did he produce or design prior to what we now know as the Spitfire? Supermarines were in the business of making flying boats, and they were basically building small volume in many cases, one-off aeroplanes for customers' particular needs. They weren't what I suppose we think of today as being particularly glamorous aeroplanes, but they were nonetheless important aeroplanes, and Supermarines had got a good reputation for building these flying boats. What, of course, propelled Reginald Mitchell to international stardom was the Schneider Trophy. It was a prize that was given to try and spur on little companies like Supermarines, to push the envelope. You talked about customers. Who were actually buying these? The military. You'd got military contractors, and you'd also got, I suppose, think back to days of the empire, where you could perhaps be in Sydney Harbour and the mail plane had come in, or you'd see a flying boat go over the pyramids. They were very much days of empire, and by Britain having its own aircraft manufacturing capability, we were able to quickly get around our empire. So basically, you think of anybody that had got an interest around the empire, whether that be governments or it be companies or even wealthy individuals, and they wanted an aeroplane. It was the latest thing. And a flying boat is what you had because you could land and take off anywhere. Yeah, because you don't know where you're going to be putting down. Don't forget, aeroplanes weren't as reliable as they are today. So you, you may have to make several stops along the way for fuel and take on provisions. Julian, what was the Schneider Trophy? The Schneider Trophy was set up by Jacques Schneider and it was a, a race or a time trial. It had to be a nationally backed team and they raced around a, a fixed circuit. The team that won the race in any given year then took the trophy home and had to put on the race the following year. Any team that won the race three times in a row would then win the trophy outright. And which countries competed? The French were there, the Italians, the Americans... And Great Britain, obviously a notable exception being Germany, who weren't allowed a, an air force after the war, but they did race before the war, the First World War. Was it a, a question of great national prestige? It was the most exciting race for any country at the time. Aeroplanes were new, it was speed, it was glamorous, it was everything that Formula One today is, and more. And aroused a lot of public interest. Yeah, and a lot of prestige to be gained as well, and not just from companies, but also, you know, nationally. It was quite patriotic. It was hugely patriotic. The Italians, of course, Mussolini was absolutely going to win it, and he threw everything at it. In fact, the reason uh, Britain won in the end is the Italian machine apparently was faster, but they'd pushed it so hard they'd had a fatal crash just a few weeks before 
the final race happened, they wanted a postponement and unfortunately Great Britain felt they couldn't postpone it any longer and <laughs> it was a, a walkover, I think, the final race. And how did RJ approach the Schneider Trophy? I think in order to break beyond the norm, you've got to allow your imagination and your engineering expertise to run a little bit wild. That is exactly what he did. It was pushing engineering know-how to the absolute limit, which is going back to the Italian crash. You're so on the edge of what, you, if you like, is known and what is safe that sometimes there are accidents. That was something that affected RJ quite badly. Yeah. He didn't like to think that anything that he'd done had hurt anybody, and obviously there were accidents, and, and it broke him up a bit, really, didn't it? But if you've got an order book that you would like to build and you've won the Schneider Trophy, obviously you're going to get lots of people knocking on your door, and that's exactly what happened to Supermarine. Well before the point at which they won the Schneider Trophy, they were the company to go for. If you wanted a, a beautiful flying boat, then you go and knock on Supermarine's door, and they got incredibly busy, and the company just grew out of all proportion. And how did the winning design evolve over those three years? Well, you've got to go further back than that. The designs that Supermarines were putting in changed very, very much over the years. Those first boats really were just designed around the flying boats that they were producing for Empire, the Empire boats. They were modifications of, of that. But the S4 that RJ and his team designed was the first one to be... It's a, a monocoque, single-winged, you know, get rid of the biplanes. It was the first time anyone had seen an aeroplane like that. It was absolutely revolutionary. So the following, the S5 and the S6 and the S6B, which actually won it came from the S4. They, were, they so. all essentially looked the same. They were modifications to existing designs, big modifications to the point at which you basically throw all that away and start again. But to look at, they were very similar. What were they powered by? At Rolls-Royce, obviously. Once the winning started to happen, then obviously there was just as much prestige for an engine builder as there was for the aeroplane because, of course, it basically was an engine with a pair of wings strapped to it, with a pilot hanging on for grim death. And that theme, the Rolls-Royce theme, very much runs through Supermarine through to the Spitfire. The Spitfire is designed around a Merlin engine, and the Merlin engine was designed around the Spitfire. And you have to perhaps point to the relationship between RJ and Henry Royce. The S4, that which we've talked about, which was revolutionary, actually had a Napier engine in it. By the time you get to the S5, they then get the Rolls-Royce engine in and there's this relationship now between Rolls-Royce and Supermarine. So draw us a word picture of the event at which Supermarine actually won the Schneider Trophy. Well, you've got to imagine the solvent at Southampton, a quarter of a million people packed in to see these planes competing in the circuit. Before any aircraft have even taken to the skies, you've got these crowds packing the seafront to see these aircraft flying around in circles. And the noise, the hustle and bustle, and I suppose there would have been plenty of people trying to make money from that. You'd have had stallholders, people selling things, local businesses really going into overdrive, as they do with any sort of big sporting events in any city now. Was the Air Ministry watching this with great interest? Was it involved? It was watching it with great interest, but it wasn't too keen on putting its hand in its pocket. 
Sounds it, familiar. It had put its hand in its pocket, to be fair, up until the final race. But by the time the final race came along, the Air Ministry had decided money was better spent in other directions, which I think was more to do with bombers and bigger aircraft and the idea of fighters wasn't quite so interesting and, and speed. A lady approached them called Lady Houston and she was a socialite who had managed to, well, marry a few gentlemen who had subsequently died and left her with a huge fortune and she gave £100,000 to sponsor the final race. So it's as much down to her as anybody that it happened. There's a backcloth to all this you also have to remember is that the war to end all wars had finished in 1918. And if you were involved in anything military, which the development of fighters and bombers really was, you were not welcomed by society at all. People did not want to know about anything like that. Supermarine had a real advantage in that they could develop these wonderful racing planes under the guise of sport and speed and everything else and not mention the word military because it was a very dirty word at the time. So the development they managed to do in that time was the envy of everybody else in the aviation industry, really. How soon after the Schneider Trophy was the land-based version of the machine developed and how soon after that was the potential seen as a fighter plane? Throughout the 30s the air ministry were aware of the threat of Germany. No one quite knew when it would come or even if it would come but there was a threat. Obviously the 30s weren't the best of times, there was an awful lot of hardship and there wasn't a great deal of funding coming forth from the Air Ministry. But the Air Ministry were wise enough to know that they'd got a good manufacturing base for aircraft. And so they spread their meagre funds around companies that they considered to be worth saving. Little bits of contracts here and there just to keep everything ticking along. And that really was the way of the 30s. No one knew what the next war would be like. As Joe said, there was very much a feeling that it would be a bomber war, not a fighter war. And it was, I suppose, a fairly half-hearted contract that the Air Ministry put out, which Supermarine tended for, and they produced a prototype aeroplane, which, if you like, was the forerunner of the Spitfire. Yeah, I think that... First flew in 1934. Yeah. I mean, it didn't perform particularly well. Mitchell wasn't happy with this prototype and he approached Rolls-Royce and they put the heads together and came up with the perfect engine and the perfect airframe. The Air Ministry wouldn't back it initially and Supermarines and Rolls-Royce is a bit of a sort of semi-secret project produced a working design of what would become the Spitfire and managed to convince the Air Ministry that what they designed was something that needed backing. And I think almost begrudgingly, the Air Ministry, because of Rolls-Royce's and Supermarine's track record, took them serious enough to say, well, OK, if you think you're so clever, have a go. And they funded a prototype. The Air Ministry still didn't think that it would be something that would be 
terribly successful because they didn't really feel that there'd be a place for a fighter in, 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 in what was then becoming a real threat from Germany. The Germans were playing a bit of a tricksy game and that they were producing aircraft that were supposedly passenger aircraft and cargo aeroplanes, but of course they were very much military. And there was quite a strong exchange of ideas, I think, from pilots from Germany and England and, and also engineers from the two quite clearly world leaders in aircraft technology. And I think there was probably a reasonable working relationship between the two countries prior to the war. Reginald Mitchell certainly went over to Germany. And I think he'd met Messerschmitt. The whole development was continuing, really ramping up, I suppose, because there was this looming threat of war. After the Schneider Trophy and with this development, had Reginald become a nationally recognised figure? Well, in 1932, off the back of that Schneider Trophy victory, he's awarded the CBE. We all remember from the Spitfire, but before then, he, he was, was making he was, his name. He was a household name as such, because of the Schneider Trophy. And you have to remember that when he died in 1937, the Spitfire had only been ordered in any quantity, I think 300 of them, about the week before he died. He didn't see it fly in anger. He did know it had been ordered by the ministry. But in his lifetime, he was not known for the Spitfire. It was the Schneider Trophy. That's why he was famous. And what did he do in that period between winning the Schneider Trophy and his untimely death? Well, the Spitfire was, I think, pretty much finished and put to bed in his mind by 1935. And he spent the last couple of years of his life focusing on a very large flying boat, but most interestingly, a bomber. The prototype was destroyed in a a raid by German bombers right at the beginning of the war, can you believe? But the bomber he was developing on paper flew 90 miles an hour faster than the Lancaster and carried more bombs. It was as big a leap forward with bombers as the Spitfire was with fighters. And yet the Lancaster certainly didn't get any faster over the course of the war in the Wellington. It wasn't until the American Superfortress, actually, that the speeds and the payload capacity matched the Mitchell bomber. One of the striking things about Mitchell in this period is right up until he dies of, of cancer, aged only 42, he was still working as hard as ever. In summary now, what do you think, from your viewpoint, made him so special? I think it's just his clear drive and sort of joy of designing aircraft. It was clearly something that he valued you know, above all else. It really drove him and he appreciated you know, what he was able to do. You can see this combination of raw talent and training in the right place at the right time, getting a job at Supermarine. And it's quite an inspirational story about how anybody, if they work hard on the talents they have, you know, you can achieve great things. Mark, as a modern engineer, looking at him now, what do you think? He was a driven genius. But notwithstanding that, of course, there are lots of people that potentially can do fantastic things if an opportunity is given to them, because it's very much about opportunity. He was in the right place at the right time. He was the right man for the job, absolutely. But so much of this is luck. The cogs turning in just the right way and things happening when they can happen to their best effect. That's it. I mean, had the Schneider Trophy never been founded or had that final race never been funded, you know, it all could have been so different despite that genius. Julian, what do you think his legacy is? 
Well, I'm immensely proud of him, obviously, from a family point of view. He was a perfectionist, but what he was also very, very good at, he was very much a man who believed in a team, and he surrounded himself by the best people. You have to only to look at the Spitfire to see that although they designed it, it was his team after he died who carried it on for the next 20 years and worked on the platform they'd got, but they could take it and carry it on. He had the finest aerodynamicists of the day, Beverly Shenton, Joe Smith, who was his number two, you know, the, the work they started, they could carry it on. He was a huge team player and understood how to get the best out of everybody who worked for him. I think that is the untold story. We all focus on the Spitfire, but Mitchell was the catalyst. It very much was what came after him that really made the Spitfire what it was. Obviously, without Mitchell, it would have never happened. But I suppose it's easy to focus on on the man, but it was very much about the team. I mean, I've, I've been in business now for 25 years, and I think that's something that you only realise once you have got a good team around you. The key to success in business, and that's really what Mitchell enabled Supermarine to become a great success, is to one, recognise good people when they happen along, two, to be able to train them in a way that gets the very best out of them, and three, to keep them. <laughs> and if you want to learn more about this remarkable man, if you want to see a wonderful example of what we all remember him for, the Spitfire, you should visit the Potteries Museum and Art Gallery where the new Spitfire Gallery is being constantly developed and redeveloped thanks to my three guests who are sitting here today. So please do come to Stoke-on-Trent and see and hear for yourself. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.